History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Pete Goddard and I am here in the HHE studio with my very own Vitruvian man. Oh my goodness. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Yeah, that's right. That's why I'm doing that star jump. <laughs> it's where you get the extra arms and legs from that I wonder. Yeah. Uh, but this is not where Vitruvian man is the Leonardo da Vinci drawing of a man in a circle and a square with his arms out and his legs out and his little wheelie out. Yeah, it's something else out, yeah. <laughs> So Ryan, we've been away, but we're back. And to remind everyone what's going on, mm-hmm. the Dursleiter most recently gave us fiction in Italy during your wild card choice, mm-hmm. the Renaissance. Yeah. I thought that was a smart move. Was it a smart move? <laughs> <laughs> uh, turns out it was an all right move. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, and in fact, I'm glad I picked that over anything else. So yeah, no, it was good. Uh, no, that's right, Pete. In today's episode, we are going back to a time of cultural rebirth. Ooh. Yeah, where a dark age shifted into the light and brought with it some of the world's greatest art, architecture and literature, importantly, for this episode. <laughs> Handily. Yeah. Uh, we are going to meet the author of a collection of 100 fictional tales. Wow. The evil teacher who taught that fiction was a friend and discover a new world with the man who was born in a hundred countries. Crumbs, that all sounds fascinating and I'm very excited about the evil teacher because I had a few of those myself. Oh yeah, didn't we all? Welcome to the land of calves and the beautiful country. Welcome to Italy. So Ryan, before we begin, the land of calves, you said? Yeah, it's just, that's its nickname. The land of calves, as in little cows? Little cows, yeah. Oh, right. The well, land of calves, yeah. Not it's also that. known as the boot. Well, yes, I get that reasons. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the beautiful country. Ah. So, Peter, I'm going to assume that most people are familiar with Italy. Yes, I've got a rough idea of where it is, poking out into the Mediterranean like a big high-heeled boot. That's right. So, yes, for the sake of completeness, though, let's just quickly run through it. So, the Italian Republic, as it is officially known, is located in the middle of the Mediterranean. Sea in southern Europe. It's a country which looks like a boot and it shares land borders with France, Switzerland, Austria, Slovenia, and the enclaved microstates of the Vatican City and San Marino. That's a lot of border for something that's mostly actually poking out into the sea. Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah, that's right. It has a coastline that runs 7,600 kilometres. That's uh, 4,722 miles long. Although on land, 35% of it is mountainous. There are lakes, there are volcanoes, there's a lot of vineyards. And at 301,000 square kilometres, that's 116,000 square miles, Italy is about half the size of France. Oh, that much? I thought it was smaller than that in my head. Oh, really? I thought it was bigger than that. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Anyway, it is, however, the 10th largest country in the world by GDP. Oh, nice. Yeah, and that's mainly down to the export of wine. And Ferraris. And Ferraris, yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, It is the world's largest wine producer, uh, as well as one of the leading exporters of olive oil, 
fruits and vegetables. Wow, that's amazing. I would have pegged France for being the, the big wine people. Italy is the world's fifth most visited country, and that's largely because it has the largest number of the world heritage sites. Places like Rome, Venice, Florence, Pompeii, the Amalfi Coast, the Dolomites, and of course the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yeah, I mean, Italy does have it all, doesn't it? It's got history, it's got historic buildings, it's got beautiful weather, it's got nice beautiful beaches, people. it's got beautiful people, it's got yeah. beautiful cars, it's got beautiful clothes. I think I want to be Italian. <laughs> they wouldn't have me, though. I they don't think definitely I'd... would not. The entry requirements have not been met. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to people, though, there are 60 million of them there. Ooh. Roman Catholic is the religion, the euro the currency, and the wolf is the national animal. Ah. Yeah. Famous Italians. There are way too many to mention, but some you might have heard of include Leonardo da Vinci, known oh, yeah. as the greatest Italian ever. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, TM. <Wow. laughs> uh, Marco Polo. Ah, yes. Giuseppe Verdi. Yes. Galileo. Galileo. Michelangelo. Giorgio Armani. Donatella Versace. Julius Caesar. Monica Bellucci. I mean, that's a good crop isn't it, already? Luciano Pavarotti, oh. Mario Balotelli, Pinocchio, Titus Andronicus, <laughs> Scaramouche, and Wario and Waluigi. Ah, it's me, Mario. Yeah, well, Wario, do actually. That. Yeah, don't do that. Was Mario not Italian? No, he's from. He's American. He's from Brooklyn. Oh, but yeah. Wario is a full. But on Wario Italian. is Italian. Apparently. Isn't he evil? So, so yes, he's the alternate. Oh. alternate Mario. So he's the evil one. Anyway, the flag <laughs> is inspired by the French flag. It has vertical stripes of green, white, and red, and those represent hope, faith, and charity. Oh, really? It's quite nice, isn't not it? Not blood and passion. And... No, oh. no. Uh, the national anthem, Pete. It's called Il Canto degli Italiani. I'm hoping it's something bombastic. It was created in 1847. You want bombast? Listen to this. Oh yeah, that's it. Oh yeah, that's the line. Oh, I like it. I can see you strutting oh, yeah. Rome in your Gucci suit. Chest full of medals. <laughs> Oh, and into a nice waltz. Oh, yeah, I kind of want to waltz with you on this. <laughs> Shall we dance? Shall we? Got a nice little change of tone to it, change of pace. It's elegant, isn't it? Yeah. We take the hand of a fine lady and step onto the floor. Take a turn about the ballroom. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't it's got that national anthem feel. It just feels like a nice waltz. Yeah. Less martial than I was expecting. Exactly. I like it. I mean, if you'd have played it to me, I would have probably guessed Italy. It would have been in my top guesses. Yeah. And nice. there you go. I like it. How fun was that? That was terrific. Right. Italy fiction facts. Fiction facts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued. In this is paradox. <laughs> in the spirit of the topic of this episode, I thought I would share some facts about Italy that are related to fiction. Gotcha. Right. So... Ancient Romans. They invented the first book. Did you know that? I did not know that. No, called the Codex. It was a collection of sort of uniform-sized sheets of papyrus bound together along one edge between two larger, stronger protective covers. Sounds Sound like familiar? a book to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, in these Codex, Romans would collect large amounts of written information concentrated in one place that was transportable. And this quickly then became the standard way to write and store information across the empire. That I, I always recall... 
excitement at hearing about early books and early writings mm-hmm. and thinking, oh my God, they're going to hear this amazing story from back then. And it's always like receipts and tax returns and things, isn't it? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Collected 10 bushels of grain today. Hooray. <laughs> 74% of Italians read books. Is that good or bad? I'm not sure how to feel about that. I think fact. it's a good thing. They generate 1.6 billion euros a year for the book industry. All right. It's a lot of euros. And the Premio Strega is the most prestigious literary award in Italy. In 2022, they awarded Best Book to Mario Desiati's Spatriati, a portrait of a generation of expatriates who mix emigration with identity research and the discovery of alternative sexual orientations. Wow, that was a turn. <laughs> Wasn't it? <laughs> well expected that, were you? It's quite the elevator pitch, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The Adventures of Pinocchio, Ah. written by Carlo Collodi in 1880. It was first serialised in a children's newspaper. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't in a book. The character of the talking cricket, later immortalised in the Disney film as Jiminy Cricket, was originally killed by Pinocchio (laughs) (laughs) after advising him to stop running away and go back home to his father. In Collodi's story, he says, At these last words, Pinocchio jumped up in a fury, took a hammer from the bench... A hammer? (laughs) (laughs) And threw it with all his strength at the talking cricket. Oh, man. Perhaps he did not think it would strike it, but sad to relate, my dear children, he did hit the cricket straight on its head with a last week crick. The poor cricket fell from the wall dead. I love that he apologises to the children whilst traumatising them. (laughs) That's a piece of work right there. Talking of Hollywood, though, Pete, in the 1970s TV show about two detectives called Starsky and Hutch. Ah, yes, I remember it well. It inspired Italy's best ever selling novel. Want to know why? (laughs) I'm curious and slightly afraid. Italian author Umberto Eco, who you Uh might have heard of. I have. He was so obsessed with watching Starsky and Hutch (laughs) that he made the main character in his novel, The Name of the Rose, a crime-fighting monk. Wow. Yeah, later played by Sean Connery in the 1986 movie. Yeah, not a bad book, that. I've read that. Right. Well, there you go. That's what you know. You didn't know it came from I, Starsky I, and Hutch. I honestly did not feel the Starsky and Hutch coming out of the page at me, I must say. Yeah. Now, Peter, as is tradition, it is important for us to sample some of the culinary delights of the countries that we visit. Very much intrinsic to our brand. Yeah. And we would be remiss if we didn't do the same for Italy, a country renowned for its delicious cuisine. I mean, I'm excited. I love tiramisu. I love pasta. Exactly. And so I have brought along a sample kit for you to try some of the best Italy has to offer. All right. I'm 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 in. This is going to be good. All right. It's in a little history happened everywhere tote bag. Oh, hello. There you go. So I uh, delve in. Feel, feel free to describe what you have in your bag. Okay. Some delicious Italian oh, there's food. something hot going on here. Oh, it's a little pizza. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's very exciting to me. Yeah, I think all Italians would recognise that as pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. not a quick little microwave pizza. Absolutely, clearly a pizza. Right, yeah. here we go. Well, uh, if you cut. We've got <laughs> mozzarella, tomato and basil pasta bowl. Yes. Pizza pasta. This is quite the buffet you've laid on. This is the thing, Italian <laughs> buffet. We have, ah, birra moretti. Yes. Delicious Delicious beer. Delicious Italian beer. What else have you got? We've got a little package of (laughs) Parmigiano. Yeah. Lovely sash of cheese, which I can put on my pizza, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, it's grated for you. (laughs) (laughs) And a little bottle of wine. It's a Pinot Grigio from Terre Siciliane. Perfect, right? Beautiful. I've got a whole meal, drinks, wine. I mean, no aperitif, but that's fine. Yeah, I (laughs) didn't have it at my local store. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. And I'm going to munch down while you tell me more Italy things. I'm going to tell you some history. All right. Well, All right. I apologise for the uh, food noises, which I'm about to make. That's totally fine. Nom, 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 nom. 
Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Uh, what are you doing? Just stomping some grapes to make a delicious Italian wine. With your feet? Oh, that's gross. No, no, no. It's the traditional way. It adds to the flavour profile. At least, that's what it says in my reviews. You've had reviews? Yeah, yeah. Loads, actually. I just got this one in. Five-star, fragrant, full-bodied, pairs well with cheese. Waffable. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've actually got a big order I'm working on. They're actually paying you, like, real money? Yeah, yeah, I'm making loads. Well, that's great. But wait, haven't you got athlete's foot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a Veruca. Oh, that's disgusting and unsanitary. No, 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 it's fine. That's why I keep my shoes on. Okay, so, Peter, the earliest man, some might call him early man... <laughs> I know him well. <laughs> <laughs> well, he first appears in Italy 850,000 years ago. Wow, that's a pretty decent chunk. Yeah, it really was. Uh, Neanderthals and uh, Homo sapiens were hanging around there together around 50,000 years ago. And sometime around 3000 BCE, a mountain hunter dies on the Austrian border and is swallowed up by a glacier. Oh no! His mummified corpse re-emerges in 1991 and is called Otzi the Iceman. Otzi the Iceman, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, I didn't realise he was Italian, but... There you wow. go. Here we go. In 2000 BCE, the Terramare people arrive in Italy. They are hunters, farmers, and bronze-making people. A thousand years later, the Proto-Villanovian people arrive, and they bring ironwork. Around this time, approximately 800 BCE, tribes known as the Etruscans start to flourish. They accumulate wealth from mining ore and trading iron and copper. The Etruscans reach across the Italian peninsula and into the western Mediterranean, where they collide with the Greeks, and so they have to ally themselves with the Carthaginians. According to legend, in 753 BCE, a wolf-raised man called Romulus creates Rome. Didn't he have a brother? He did, Remus. Hmm. Yeah. Does he not get credit? He doesn't get credit. Oh. It's just Romulus. Oh, yeah. hence the rom, rum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise we ream. Rem. <laughs> 200 years later, the Roman Republic is formed and the next 200 years is spent with them taking over pretty much of Italy. In the first 100 years of the new millennium, the Roman Empire is established with Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Julius Caesar becomes dictator of Rome, only to be killed a year later. Et tu, Brute? A gladiator named Spartacus leads a slave rebellion Rome burns in the Great Fire of Rome. Pompeii is destroyed when Mount Vesuvius erupts. The Colosseum in Rome is completed and much bloodshed is had to the enjoyment of thousands. Fun for all the family. For the next 200 years, Rome expands into Europe. Then in 395, the Roman Empire splits into two. You've got in Rome, in Italy, the Western Roman Empire, and in Turkey, you've got the Eastern Roman Empire. By 476, the Roman Empire has fallen completely, though, and the Ostrogoths take over. Now, they rule until 751, when the Lombards take over. Now, the Pope's annoyed by this, so he seeks help from the Franks, who come in, leading a, a force into Italy led by Charlemagne, and the Lombards are defeated. Charlemagne is rewarded and becomes leader of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, that brings us to the 1200s, and at this point, there are some powerful city-states that have developed throughout Italy, places like Florence, Milan, Venice and Naples. The 14th to the 16th centuries brings the Renaissance, but we're going to cover that in a little bit. In the 18th century, Napoleon conquers northern Italy and declares it part of the French Empire. But by 1814, Napoleon is defeated and Italy is now divided into several small states. The 19th century sees the reunification of Italy, with Rome being made the capital. 
1915, Italy joins World War I on the side of the Allies and is rewarded with the gift of new territories. A fascist government then takes control in 1922 with Benito Mussolini as dictator. And in 1940, during World War II, Mussolini joins Hitler's team and uses this as an excuse to invade Greece. But that doesn't work out. And three years later, Mussolini loses power and Italy surrenders. A new government is formed, Rome is liberated, and Mussolini is executed. A new republic is formed, along with a new constitution. By 1950, the economy not only stabilises, but starts to boom. The 1970s, however, sees an escalation in political violence, and by the 1990s, significant challenges are being faced as disenchanted voters face a kind of paralysis as they can't decide on who to vote for in the wake of massive government debt, extensive corruption, and the influence of organised crime. Media magnate Silvio Berlusconi, he steps up, offering to solve all of these problems and is therefore voted in as Prime Minister. By simply telling you that it's all fine now. <laughs> yes, exactly. That helps when you own the media, right? Over the next decade, he steps down, he regains power, he loses power, he becomes PM again, and then finally resigns in 2011. Turmoil follows with a succession of so many new leaders that they were averaging one new government every year. Wow. In fact, since the end of World War II, they totaled 69 new leaders. Wow, that cannot be helpful. Yes, this is not helpful, is it? You need some kind of routine. Anyway, today, Italy has a right-wing coalition government with a group of fascists at its core. Their first female prime minister, Giorgia Meloni, has a right-wing ideology, which is best described in a speech she gave in 2021, which said, Yes to the natural family. No to the LGBT lobby. Yes to sexual identity. No to gender ideology. No to Islamist violence. Yes to secure borders. No to mass migration. No to big international finance. No to the bureaucrats of Brussels. That sounds familiar from our own right-wing firebrands. And many others across Europe. Ah, just going to say, boo. (laughs) Nail my colours to the mast. (laughs) Anyway, there you go. That's the history up to today. That was pretty good because they have a lot of history. They really did. That was very difficult. That was probably the hardest part of all my notes. Ah, Mrs. Wolf, you must be Romulus's mother. Welcome to your first parents' evening. Let's start with attendance, shall we? So, Romulus always comes when called, and he has an excellent temperament. In class, he will sit and stay. Unfortunately, though, Romulus has repeatedly been found to have eaten his homework, which can be problematic, as is his habit of marking his territory in and around the classroom. We've tried rubbing his nose in it, Mrs. Wolf, but there is room for improvement. More worryingly, though, we have had to repeatedly warn him that it is not appropriate to sniff the bottoms of his classmates or sexually mount them. All that being said, in sports, Romulus performs excellently, especially in running, jumping and ball games. Overall, Romulus is a very good boy. A very, very good boy. Such a good boy, eh? Oh, isn't he? Isn't he such a good boy? Oh, he's a good boy! Oh, he's a good boy! Good boy!
Memento Peter, the Renaissance, as promised. What is it? Who was it? Why was it? These are all good questions. Yeah, well, let's see if we can find out. Well, after the fall of ancient Rome, Europe entered into a period of time called the Middle Ages, otherwise known as the Dark Ages. This was a period of war, famine, and disease. Very few notable advances were made in science and art during this time until a cultural movement started called humanism. Now, starting in the 14th century, humanism upheld the idea that man was the centre of his own universe, and therefore achievements in education, arts, literature, and sciences should all be embraced. So, in 1450, the invention of the printing press allowed for these ideas of humanism to spread quickly across Europe. Now, the Italian city of Florence was, at this time, run by wealthy citizens like the powerful Medici family. Oh, I think I've heard of them. Yeah, and they used their resources to help support artists. Pretty good time if you're an artist, getting paid to do your work. Imagine. <laughs> Not getting paid in exposure. <laughs> so this began an intellectual and artistic revolution, uh, which expanded out to all the other Italian cities until eventually most of Europe followed too. The Renaissance, as it became known, was a time where some of the most famous and groundbreaking intellectuals, artists, scientists and writers flourished. People like Da Vinci, Erasmus, Descartes, Galileo, Copernicus, Milton, Shakespeare, Donatello, Raphael, Michelangelo, Botticelli. I mean, those are the heavy hitters, aren't they? Yeah. Art incorporated science to present realistic and natural imagery. Architects used mathematics to engineer immense buildings with these huge, expansive domes. Scientific discoveries led to major shifts in thinking. Da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. Michelangelo carved the Statue of David. St. Peter's Basilica was built in the Vatican City. The telescope the microscope and eyeglasses were invented, gravity was described, and Europeans took to the seas to learn more about the world around them, kickstarting the age of discovery. So, more people learned to read, write, interpret ideas, which led to a closer examination of religion, with questions being raised about the role of the church and the teachings within the Bible. By 1600, numerous wars had sort of caused instability and economic decline across Europe, which meant less funding for the arts, so the uh, Renaissance started to grind to a halt. The Catholic Church used this as an opportunity to prevent any further damage that they were receiving. <laughs> Stop looking at things! Yeah, and so they set about on a mission to punish anyone who's thinking they considered to be too bold or too creative. And that essentially put the end to the Renaissance. But the impact of those 300 years of creative thought changed the way people understood and interpreted the world around them forever, the effects of which are still being felt today. Awesome! Teenage Mutant Italian Artist Teenage Mutant Italian Artist Teenage Mutant Italian Artist Renaissance in a nutshell Artist power! They're the greatest artists ever seen We're in museums! A sculpting, painting and inventing team I made a helicopter! When the dark ages are done Enlightenment is sure to come Teenage Mutant Italian Artist Teenage Mutant Italian Artist Medici Money funds their artist dreams These guys are rich! Donatello paints Leonardo draws machines And corpses too! Raphael paints ladies new I make porn! Michelangelo sculpts handsome dudes I'm Teenage Mutant Italian Artist Teenage Mutant Italian Artist Teenage Mutant Italian artist Renaissance in a nutshell Artist power (laughs) 
so how do we define fiction? Things that are not true. Yeah, pretty much. In, <laughs> in its broadest definition, something fictional is either invented or untrue. Most commonly, fiction is used to tell stories about people and places which are um, imagined or inconsistent with history, fact, or plausibility. Like much of your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Books, films, theatre, video games, they all use fiction as a creative method to present a non-real version of truth for the purposes of entertainment. It is a socially accepted form of deception, where people willingly seek out and receive made-up stories for the, you know, their own amusement or education. Basically, in this situation, no one is being taken advantage of. And that differs to another form of fiction, which is just lying. Ah. Right? Where storytellers intentionally try to deceive another person by presenting made-up information as truth or fact. Fiction and lying both involve creating an illusion. It's just how that illusion is interpreted by the recipient. And that's where today's episode rests, because we're going to be looking at untruths told both for entertainment and for deception. Ooh. So let's start, shall we, Peter, with some fictional stories written for the purposes of entertainment. Entertain me, Ryan. So, in 1313, in a small Italian town called Setallo, about 35 kilometres southwest of Florence, there lived a merchant called Boccaccino de Cileno. Are you making these names up? No. <laughs> <laughs> he and an unknown woman welcomed the delivery of a baby boy, whom they called Giovanni Boccaccio. So, in 1326, Boccaccio's father was appointed the head of a bank in Naples, and so the family uprooted and moved cities. Boccaccio became an apprentice there, at the bank, uh, but he hated the job so much that he persuaded his father to let him study law instead, which he did, for, and he did that for about six years, during which time he was introduced to the Neapolitan nobility, where he fell in love with the married daughter of the king, an incident which influenced him greatly, as we shall see later. <laughs> that sounds like a high-risk love strategy, I've got to be honest. Yeah, it's <laughs> Not a great one. The late 1330s were a particularly bad time for Boccaccio. Dealing with heartbreak, he grew tired of law. He returned to Florence with his father, who subsequently then became bankrupt. And then he watched as a plague swept through Florence, resulting in the death of his mother, followed a year later by the death of his father. Oh, that's a bad run. That's a tough year. Yeah. So in this spirit, Boccaccio turns his attention to writing poetry, as you might. Well, you got to do something, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Among which was a collection of fiction fictional tales framed by an overall story of ten young people who fled from plague-stricken Florence to a villa in a nearby town. Where does he get his ideas? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Over ten days, each of the group of ten people tells a tale, meaning that the complete work has a collection of a hundred stories. Called the Decameron, from the Greek meaning ten days, the work is today regarded as a masterpiece of classical Italian prose. One hundred tales is a lot, and it's clear that Boccaccio borrowed many of the stories from various folklore and myth, but the way he rewrites them and weaves them into this sort of sophisticated structure for its time made the work stand out, and it influenced many Renaissance writers, including Geoffrey Chaucer. I was getting Canterbury Tales vibes off it, I must admit. There you go. Only a few decades later, he wrote The Canterbury Tales, a book which also collects a series of unconnected <laughs> tales yeah. under one overarching narrative. I've had an idea. <laughs> Have you, Jeffrey? <laughs> <laughs> so, romantic in tone, the Decameron's tales cover various different themes, including vice, fortune, will, wit, gaiety, as well as lies and deceit. 
And because we're looking at fiction, I thought I'd share a couple of his tales which involve lying. Go for it. Lie to me, Ryan. (laughs) Okay, so on the seventh day, the second tale told was this. Peronella lives with her poor husband in Naples. Every day, her husband goes off to find work and she stays home to spin wool. Now, pretty soon, she catches the eye of a young gentleman called Gianello. And you're definitely not making these names up. Definitely not making them up. (laughs) So the pair figure out that once her husband leaves for the day, they're going to have plenty of time all day to fool around before he returns. Except on one day, when her husband returns early and finds the door to the house locked. Oh, classic. Husband's home early. You know what he says? What a virtuous wife. She's locked the door behind me to keep the naughty men out. Oh. Yeah. Oh, poor naive soul. (laughs) Hearing her husband at the door, Perinella quickly hides her lover in an empty wine barrel before opening the door and shouting at her husband. Why aren't you at work? She says. That's a classic projection. (laughs) How could I have married such a lazy person? How are we supposed to put food on the table? Calm down, he says. It's a holiday day today, so there's no work to do. But don't worry, because I can find some money because I found someone who's willing to buy that old wine barrel of ours. Oh. Yeah. At this, Perinella panics because she knows who's inside the wine barrel. But she does some quick thinking, right? And she tells her husband that she's already sold the barrel. And the buyer is inside it right now, inspecting the quality. That is 10 out of 10 for quick thinking, I have to say. I admire that. Right? And the husband is super pleased. And he insists on meeting this buyer. Inside the barrel, however, Gianello, who's overheard this conversation. Oh, he has got the memo, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's overheard it, right? So he decides he's going to play along. So he greets the husband. Hiya. Just you right? in the barrel. Just in the barrel. Yeah. And he says to him, you know what? This barrel's pretty good. (laughs) But it does need a bit of a clean before I'm willing to buy it. So, eager for the sale, the husband and the lover swap places, with the husband lowering himself inside the barrel to start scraping away any leftover wine. While he's doing that, Perinella leans over the edge of the barrel and starts shouting instructions at him, saying, Clean it better! You missed a bit! Look! He's picked a wrong in here, hasn't he? While she's yelling at him, with the husband out of sight, Gianello steps up behind Perinella, lifts up her skirt, and has sex with her, in quotes, like a wild stallion with a mare. Crumbs! (laughs) Having finished cleaning the barrel, the husband clambers out and Gianello leaves the house happily, having both had his way with Perinella and now carting off a nice clean barrel to boot. End of story. That's the end of the storm. <laughs> that is a deeply unsatisfying ending, I have to say. That poor guy. On the plus side, he made a few bob on the barrel, I suppose. So it's not all bad news, is it? <laughs> anyway, that was that was that day. Do you want to know what happens Other on than the that, eighth how day? How was your day? <laughs> on the eighth day, yes. the seventh tale told uh-huh. is this one. So, Elena, a young widow of Florence. She takes a new gentleman as her lover. Oh, dear. There is a theme. (laughs) (laughs) Many of these stories involve taking a lover. But because she's very beautiful and knows it, another gentleman named Rinieri falls in love with her. Now, Rinieri's a very clever fellow, Pete, having just returned from studying, get this, in Paris. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now, Alina wants nothing to do with him, but she can't resist flirting and sort of stringing him along. So, her lover... 
learns that Ranieri has a thing for his girl and he starts getting jealous. So to prove her devotion to him, Elena decides to play a trick on Ranieri. She tells him to come to her after Christmas so they can hook up. Now, Ranieri's delighted, obviously, and when he arrives at her home at the appointed time, Elena's maidservant locks him in the courtyard and tells him to wait there until Elena appears. Elena, meanwhile, is in the warm house with her lover and shows him the freezing Ranieri, <laughs> mocking this apparently smart man for being such a fool. She sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> she even speaks with Ranieri, telling him that her brother has paid a surprise visit to the house and, well, she can't bring him inside until he leaves. And so, standing in the wintry night, Ranieri nearly freezes to death, waiting for Alina to return. Just a prank, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Hours pass. Eventually, he realises that he has been fooled. His love for Alina turns into hatred. He spends the next several months recovering from his near-death experience and plotting his revenge. Yeah, it feels a bit more satisfying than Barrel Scraper. <laughs> Well, as it happens, over those months, Alina's lover has left her for a younger woman and she misses him greatly. Aww. <laughs> so desperate is she to get back with him that she follows her maidservant's advice to consult with Ranieri to find a magical spell which will make the lover return. That is an off-the-wall suggestion, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so the ma <laughs> yeah. So she agrees with that, and the maidservant is sent to ask Ranieri for help. What could possibly go wrong in this scenario? Yeah. And sensing an opportunity for revenge, I know, right? <laughs> he agrees. So Ranieri advises Elena that to get her lover back, she must follow his instructions precisely. So he draws a picture of the lover, and he tells Elena that she must take it to a flowing stream by herself in the middle of the night where she must take off all her clothes and dip herself into the water seven times. Once she's done this, while naked, importantly, she must climb something very high and recite some magical words. So Alina does exactly this, performing the ritual, climbing a ladder naked to the top of an observation tower. Ranieri, meanwhile, takes the opportunity to remove the ladder, leaving Elena stuck at the top of the tower completely naked. Alina realises too late that she's been trapped and no one can hear her cries for help. The next day, Ranieri returns to the tower and he gloats of his revenge. Elena pleads with him as she's now got terrible sunburn. She's been in the summer sun all day. She's been bitten from the insects at night and she is dying of thirst. There's no water up there. Now, remembering his treatment in the frozen courtyard, Ranieri has zero pity and he spends the entire day taunting her from the ground, watching her suffer and burn, suggesting that if she's so anxious to get off the roof, well, she could just jump off and break her neck. Correct, I suppose. <laughs> Technically correct. <laughs> anyway, Pete, you'll be pleased to know that eventually he does agree to bring her some clothes and the ladder so that she can climb back down. But in reality, he goes off for lunch and he has a long nap. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, when Alina is on the brink of death, Ranieri takes her clothes to the maidservant and tells her where Alina can be found, but not before warning her that he'd have his revenge on the maid too. Ooh. Yeah, and so the maidservant hurries to the tower and with the help of a pig farmer, enables Elena to get down from the tower. Unfortunately for the maid, in helping her mistress get down, she slips on the ladder and snaps her thigh bone. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's revenge on its own, surely. Yeah. Well, completing Ranieri's revenge. Oh. Now, Elena lives through the ordeal, as does the maidservant, and she vows to herself never to play tricks on anyone else 
or mess around with men. Ah, that's a lot more satisfying. I like that one. You like that bit? That Everyone's better, awful it? to each other in this world. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Renaissance. <laughs> anyway, so as we can see in the Decameron, Boccaccio shows a flair for telling tall tales in fiction for entertainment. But there was another Renaissance man who loved fiction just as much, but not for entertainment's sake. He preferred to use fiction to deceive people. So we're going to learn a little about him right now. I want to know more. Jeffrey, 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 Jeffrey Chaucer. Hello, John. How's the book sales? Good, good. Numbers are up from last week. Excellent. But the thing is, we have received some comments. Comments? Yes, comments. Uh, some people have suggested similarities between your work and Boccaccio's The Decameron. I've never heard of it. It was very popular. Was it? Yes. Well, I mean, I wouldn't know anything about that. I mean, what similarities are they even talking about? Well, mostly the overarching framework, the tone and the theme, the style, the characters, the plot. Yeah, 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 yeah. But is this Decameron set in Canterbury? No. Well, there you are. Completely different. Jeffrey. I don't know what you mean. All right, all right, all right. Well, look, look, we'll move on. Uh, about your next book. I've been reviewing it and I have some questions. Right. Uh, for starters, the main character. Breezus? Yes, Breezus. The one who's born to a virgin mother. Yeah. In a manger, in a stable. In Canterbury. Well, in Canterbury, yes, but it, it's the Bible, isn't it? What? The Bible. Never heard of it. But, but it is a copy of the Bible, isn't it? No. Breezus of Canterbury is an entirely original work about one man's struggle against the Bromans to bring Christianity to the world. Jeffrey? What? <sighs> I suppose it will sell a lot of copies. Okay, so, born in Florence in 1469, Niccolò de Bernardo de... Medici. No, Machiavelli. Oh, Machiavelli! That's right. He grew up during a period of turmoil. Yes. I thought you might have got that, you see. The powerful families who ran Italian city-states like the Medicis were rising and falling abruptly as popes and kings of France and Spain and the Holy Roman Empire waged wars for influence across the region. Political, military alliances were changing continuously with leaders switching sides without warning, leaving governments to sort of fluctuate in and out of power. Now, during all of this upheaval, Machiavelli, who had studied Latin and Greek, got a job writing official government documents before then becoming a diplomat. So he travelled around doing, I don't know, diplomat things. Dipl diplomacy. Diplomacy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even visiting the royal courts in France and in Spain. Uh, but by the early 16th century, Machiavelli had grown tired of diplomacy, right? I'm Sick of diplomacy. Showing up places and going, I like your hat. <laughs> <laughs> so he decided that the best thing he could do was to build a militia instead. I mean, that's a good plan B, isn't it? Well, yeah. that's, what, that's what I plan to do if this current job doesn't work out. <laughs> Just build your own militia. <laughs> well, and by 1506, he'd succeeded. He had recruited, suited and armed 400 farmers <laughs> <laughs> whom he led to victory on an attack on the city of Pisa. Oh man, I want a militia now. Right? right. Just off you go, boys. <laughs> <laughs> 
But his success did not last long because Pisa was recaptured just three years later in 1512. So Machiavelli, removed from office, is accused of conspiracy. He is imprisoned and he is tortured by means of the rope. Now, that doesn't sound good. The rope is not good. This is where your wrists are bound behind your back and then a hoist is attached to the bound wrists and you are lifted such that your arms bear the, your entire body oh, weight. Oh, no, don't like that. Yeah, so despite the agony of suffering dislocated shoulders, Machiavelli denies any involvement in the attack. He says, what? Meanwhile, there's a militia with Machiavelli's boys <laughs> embroidered on the front. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And it works. They release him just three weeks later. They go, oh, all right, off you go. That's <laughs> bizarre. Anyway, he retires from politics. He settles on a farm. And while he's recovering from his injuries, he devotes himself to study. He writes political treaties. He joins intellectual groups and he writes several successful plays. And it was during this time that Machiavelli wrote perhaps his most famous work, The Principatibus of Principalities, later published in 1532 as Il Principe, or The Prince. Now, essentially, this was a how-to guide for anyone seeking power. The thrust of the book was that only by immoral means could you help achieve greatness. Basically, he wrote that anyone looking to establish a successful kingdom or a republic would be required to engage in treachery and deception. So, for its time, this was controversial stuff, right? Because it challenged traditional concepts of honour and morality in favour of apparently evil behaviour, which would help tyrants maintain their power. And that controversy has never dissipated. Today, some people refer to Machiavelli as the father of modern political science, while others simply refer to him as the teacher of evil. Wow. Mm. Well, I've read The Prince, and uh, I am not the leader of a small city-state at this point, so I say it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so some of the more controversial parts of the prince include the advice that successful rulers should appear one way yet act another in his own words he says everyone admits how praiseworthy it is in a prince to keep his word and to behave with integrity rather than cunning nevertheless those princes who have done great things have considered keeping their word of little account and have known how to beguile men's minds by shrewdness and cunning. Basically saying, it's fine to look good and compassionate, but to stay in power and maintain the state, stubbornly keeping your word for the sake of appearance isn't very wise, especially if it threatens your position or the state. He says, your word is not your bond. It's a choice you make. A wise lord cannot, nor ought he to, keep his promises when such observance would place him at a disadvantage and when the reasons for which he gave his word no longer exist. Basically, he's saying it's okay to lie under certain circumstances. After all, no one ever got elected by telling the truth, right? You want to try and become a leader by promising to raise taxes, cut services, or increase spending? It's unlikely you're going to get voted in. The public want to hear positive, calming words from their leaders. But politicians know that any such reassurances are going to be lies because they cannot or will not fulfil them. In other words, it's all very well to appear good, but you must be capable of being bad when necessary. When the time comes, you must act as circumstance demands, not according to your own fixed moral compass. The only way you can ever get elected is by promising the opposite and hoping that no one finds out. As Machiavelli says, occasionally words must serve to veil the facts. But let this happen in such a way that no one become aware of it. Or, if it should be noticed, excuses must be at hand to be produced immediately. <laughs> be prepared. 
He doesn't say it's right to make a promise knowing you have no intention of keeping it. Rather that if you make a promise you intended to keep and later renege on it, well, that's not really lying. It's just dealing with changing circumstances. Now, if everyone kept their word all the time, things would just start falling apart. But he's also not saying it's okay to lie all the time either, or to break every promise. In a world where no one can be trusted, you can't succeed. So what he suggests is that leaders need to be cunning and hide their real intentions. You can't have people thinking you're going to break your promises, so you must convince them you intend to follow through on them. And this is easier than you think, because people are often willing to be deceived. He says men are so simple and so subject prone to be won over by necessities that a deceiver will always find someone who is willing to be deceived. And this is because when leaders break their promises, the people are willing to hold their faith in them, because to do otherwise would make them seem like idiots for having elected them in the first place. I mean, I'm feeling this in a big way. (laughs) It feels relevant, right? Yeah. All you need to be loved and respected by others is the appearance of being good. You don't actually have to be good, just look like it. And people will happily believe you because it confirms their own wisdom in electing you. What you need to be mindful of, though, he says, is when people stop believing in the fantasy, because that's when you'll be dethroned which feels relevant in these past couple of weeks. Very much so. There's a lot of that going on these days, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah. So talk the good talk, even if you don't walk the good walk. Let your appearance and speech be benign and gracious. A prince ought to take care that everyone sees and hears him as a paragon of mercy, loyalty, humanity, integrity and scrupulousness. Basically, Machiavelli advises that you should tell the people what they want to hear and they will believe you. All right. Top tips. Top tips from Machiavelli. Thanks, Mac. Or (laughs) Nick, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah. And so, with Machiavelli's advice ringing in our ears, let's take a look at another Renaissance man. A leader who, on a few occasions, demonstrated a particularly devious and deceptive side. Let's find out. Machiavelli, my good man. Come, come, sit with me. My liege. Now, listen, Mac. As you know, we've been having terrible trouble with a neighbouring kingdom. Indeed we have, sir. So I have decided we're going to attack them on the morrow. Oh, very good, sir. I'm going to dispatch a messenger to advise them that we are going to attack at dawn at the Eastern Gate. Oh, very good indeed, sir. But have you considered telling them that you will attack the West Gate at noon? But but that's not the plan. Indeed, sire. The enemy will amass their forces in the wrong location, and victory shall be yours. By God, Machiavelli! You are good. Indeed, sire. I shall advise them as you suggest. Now, the war will cost a lot of money. Of course, sir. So I shall issue a proclamation to the people informing them that enormous tax increases will be required. Excellent idea, sir. But have you considered not telling the people that? Perhaps saying that no tax rises will be required at all. But that's ridiculous! How on earth do you expect me to pay for all this war? By applying enormous tax rises, sire. By God, Machiavelli! You are good. Indeed, sire. Now if I may raise the trifling matter of my fee. Ah, yes. Well, you see, I'd like to pay you a huge amount of gold, but I only have two gold ducats in my treasury. Do you, sire? Or do you, in fact, have loads? By God, Machiavelli, you are good. (laughs) We do indeed have loads, and you shall be paid in full. Very good, sire. And as ever, you have my enduring loyalty. Excellent. Wait! (laughs) 
So, in Genoa, in Italy, sometime between 1435 and 1451, poor fabric tanners Domenico Colombo and Susanna Fontana Rossa had a baby boy, who they called Christopher. At the time, Genova was a independent republic in northwest Italy with lots of trading connections to many foreign cities. And so, young Christopher Colombo ah. <laughs> spent a lot of time to recognize this chap. <laughs> <laughs> spent a lot of time hanging out at the docks, studying ships, making maps and learning to sail. Eventually, he joined several trading voyages until in 1476, pirates attacked a ship he was working on and he was cast adrift. Now, managing to float to the Portuguese shore, he made his way to Lisbon. Now, he lived in Lisbon for many years, meeting a Portuguese noblewoman called Dona Felipa Monice Parestello, whom he married in 1478. Now, during his time in Lisbon, Christopher Columbus's interest in geography, philosophy, theology, and history grew. He took especial interest in mapping, and by 1480, he had established a theory that there was an alternative route to the East Indies. Now, at the time, traders from Europe had to sail south along the African coast and around the Cape of Good Hope to get to the east, which was dangerous, largely because of the weather, but also because of hostile armies which were blocking them. So Columbus had an idea which was to reach Asia by crossing the Atlantic Ocean to the west. Now, he formalised a proposal for an exploratory mission, but he needed financing for that, so he presented his plans to John II of Portugal, who rejected it immediately. But undeterred, Columbus approached wealthy families in Venice, Genoa, France, and even King Henry VII of England all of whom rejected his idea. I'm out. For that reason, I'm yeah. out. <laughs> in January 1492, though, he approached Queen Elizabeth I and King Ferdinand II of Spain, but they rejected him too. I can't. You've got to admire his stick to He's given it everything, isn't he? Well, and that's what they did. It was because of Columbus's persistence, Isabella and Ferdinand reconsidered, and finally they agreed to finance an exploratory voyage. And so Columbus and 90 men commenced their journey on the 3rd of August 1492 in three ships. La Santa Clara, La Pinta, and La Santa Galaga. So they headed west, and after 10 weeks, they made a huge discovery. It wasn't a trade route to India, but it was a new world, the Americas. Now, that's the story of how Columbus reached America, but there are a few stories within that one which display a duplicitous side to his character. For example... Columbus departed Spain towards the Canary Islands half an hour before sunrise on the 3rd of August 1492. By early October, the voyage was weeks overdue for seeing land, and he wrote briefly in his journal that the mood on board the ship was starting to change. <laughs> <laughs> Dear diary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The crew were nervous that they were wandering further from the safety of home with no land to be found. Rumours were starting to circulate of a potential mutiny. So, Columbus had an idea, and he started to write an additional captain's log, nearly identical to the real one, but with purposely smaller distances noted than the ship had actually travelled. Now, he circulated this fake log amongst the crew and went, look, see, we haven't travelled very far at all. <laughs> if we have to turn around, it's no big deal. We're not that far from home at all. <laughs> And the fake captain's log ruse, it worked for a while. But as time passed and no land was sighted and they still kept on sailing, the crew became restless again. So to appease them, Columbus lied about signs of land. He pointed out sightings of birds, whales, and even floating vegetation, all as clear signs that land must be close. Yeah, if everyone knows you can find whales inland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as the days continued without land, uh, his lies became 
more obvious. And eventually, on October 11th, Columbus had no choice. He couldn't lie anymore. And so he told his crew that if they did not spot land in two days' time, they would reluctantly turn around. And lucky for him, the very next day, oh, land was sighted. Oh. <laughs> Can't his... imagine what his heart must have been like. <laughs> oh, wow. And his crew never discovered his deception. Sneaky He got kids. away with it. Nice. So, the next story. Prior to Columbus setting sail, the Queen of Spain made a pledge that the sailor who made the first sighting of land in the New World, he would receive 10,000 maravedis. That's about 3,000 US dollars today, every year for the rest of their life. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And at, the, at the time, the sailors were being paid around 1,000 maravedis a month. So this was just less than a year's salary. So this was a big deal, right? This is retirement money. And so it was that on October 12th, a sailor called Juan Rodriguez Bermeo, also known as Rodrigo de Triana, was on watch in the crow's nest. At 2am, his attention was drawn to moonlight shining on white sands. And realising that land was near, he cried out, Tierra! Tierra! Which meant land, land. I could translate that for you. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So Rodrigo, he had spotted a small island in the Lucayas archipelago, known today as the Bahamas in the Caribbean Sea. Now, Rodrigo was keen to claim this prize, right? This life-changing sum of money. But Columbus refused, claiming to have seen the same lights a day earlier. So, hang on, let's play this back. So, boss, I saw the old land there. Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah, yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) That's how the conversation went. (laughs) Look, it's in my log. That's right. According to his logbook... <laughs> yeah, according to his logbook, at 10 o'clock on the previous night, <laughs> Columbus was on the stern castle at the back of the boat when he seen a light. It wasn't clear, so he couldn't confirm it was land, but he called Pero Guterres, his butler, and told him about the light and asked him to look. And the butler said he did. He said that he could see it too. So Columbus wanted verification on this, right? Because he didn't want to be accused of lying. No. Honestly. (laughs) (laughs) So he asked the ship's accountant, Rodrigo Sanchez of Segovia, to take a look as well. But the accountant couldn't see anything, according to Columbus, because he wasn't standing in the right position to see it. Yeah, and he couldn't move him. That would be crazy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so Columbus wrote in his logbook that he saw a light, in quotes, like a little wax candle rising and falling. But it was so indistinct. I couldn't really affirm it was land. Brackets, but it probably was. <laughs> <laughs> and so with this, Columbus used Rodrigo de Tiriana's <laughs> sighting of land, not as first sight, but as confirmation of his own. Right, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'd am i have to have a word with HR in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, when Columbus returned to Spain, he claimed the reward as his own. And as for Rodrigo de Triana, well, after returning to Spain, he then sailed to Africa, where he committed suicide two years later. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Columbus, you big jerk. <laughs> Is that land? Probably. I'll pop that down every night. Yep, probably saw land. <laughs> Admiral! Admiral! Admiral Columbus! Yes? Oh, I'm sad to report there's been another theft. Another item has gone missing. Oh, no, surely not. Yeah, Seaman Jones is reporting a missing locket. The gold one with a picture of his sweetheart inside? Yes, very much like that one, sir. Oh, well, I I think actually I can clear this up. You can, sir? Absolutely. Uh, Seaman Jones has simply forgotten that he gave said locket to me as a token of his affection. He did? Yes, yes, look, it's here in the logbook. 
Look here. 5th of October 1492, today Seaman Jones gave me his locket as a sign of his affection. What a nice man. End of report. Oh, I, well, I see, sir. Um, but there is also the matter of Navigator Gomez. Uh, he's lost his fine hat. Really? Yes, sir. A hat very much like the one you are currently sporting has gone missing. Well, that that's very unfortunate, but uh, obviously it cannot be mine because, look, look, here again in the logbook. 3rd of October 1492, joked with Navigator Gomez about our remarkably similar hats. He agreed mine was better. End of report. I see, sir. Well, I guess that does clear that up. Uh, there is one more thing, though, Admiral. Yes, yes, yes. What is it? There are rumours circulating uh, that there might just possibly be a fake logbook on the ship. What? Nonsense! Oh, I thought we settled this ages ago. Look, look, let's have a look. 4th of October here, 1492. The crew inspected the Admiral's totally genuine logbook and all agreed it was totally genuine and that the Admiral was doing an excellent job. End of report. But I don't remember that, sir. Well, we can't always remember everything, can we? That's why we have the logbook, which is, of course, totally genuine. Exactly. OK, well, I'll inform the men. 7th of October, 1492. The first mate has kindly volunteered for a week of very unpleasant latrine duty. How generous. End of report. done with Columbus. Oh, right? what's he and done fiction, now? Right? So, on the 30th of June, 1503, Columbus is in Jamaica, right? And he beaches two ships. The indigenous people of the island, they welcome him and his crew going out of their way to feed them in exchange for trade, right? Fair enough. But after six months of this, Columbus runs into a problem. He's running out of things to trade. And so the indigenous chief stops supplying them food. In a bind, Columbus stumbles upon an idea. On board his ship, he has an almanac of astronomical tables. So while consulting the book, Columbus notices that the date and time of an upcoming lunar eclipse was just a week away. So he decides to use this to his advantage. He requests a meeting with the tribal leader and tells him that his god is really angry with the people's treatment of his men. He says that god is so angry, in fact, that he would provide a sign of his displeasure by making the full moon appear inflamed with wrath. So on schedule, the eclipse happens, the moon darkens, and it turns blood red. The indigenous people go out of their minds. They're both impressed. Well, you read, wouldn't you? You're like, what? I'm terrified. <laughs> yeah. The son of Columbus, Ferdinand, he wrote that the people, in quotes, with great howling and lamentation, came running from every direction to the ships, laden with provisions, praying the admiral to intercede by all means with God on their behalf, that he might not visit his wrath upon them. Pretty scared well, you would, people, wouldn't you? right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, hearing their pleas, what does Columbus do? Oh, he fixes that old moon right away. <laughs> he does. He makes a play of going into his cabin to prey on it. <laughs> but actually just sat at his desk timing the eclipse with an hourglass. <laughs> <laughs> After 48 minutes, shortly before the totality ended, he emerges from his cabin and he tells the frightened tribe that they're going to be forgiven. It's all okay. <laughs> and sure enough, the moon starts to reappear from the shadow of the earth. As it returns to normal, he tells them that God has pardoned them. 
Oh, you've got to admire the moxie of the man, really, haven't you, in that instance? He's kind of a jerk on some of those other stories, but that one's pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) Relieved, the islanders continue to offer Columbus and his men provisions, and this time free of charge. (laughs) Well, well, well. (laughs) (laughs) Columbus does well again. Oh, man, he was an awful man, wasn't he, in so many ways. (laughs) But yeah, we are still not done with fiction and Columbus. Ooh. Yeah, because if you remember, we said that Columbus was born to a poor Italian family in Genoa. But the origins of Columbus prior to his seafaring voyages is largely unknown. The established and largely accepted legend is that he is Italian, but there are many questions about the truth behind who Columbus really was. Washington Irving, the first historian to write a detailed biography of Columbus and who had access to an entire archive of information on him, reported that there was, in quotes, much controversy about the birthplace of Columbus. It has formed a point of zealous controversy, which is not yet satisfactorily settled. And that remains true to today, because we still don't have definitive proof of where he came from. There are apparently legal documents which demonstrate his Genoese origin, but there are as many other reputable reports which conclude that Christopher Columbus, if that was his real name, might have come from somewhere other than Italy. In fact, after his father's death, Columbus's son claimed that they were originally from a noble family, one reduced in wealth due to various wars. There are claims from countries across Europe that Columbus was one of their own. Some say he was Spanish because he was fluent in the Castilian language. He wrote uh, his diaries and logbooks in Castilian. He signed his name in Spanish as Cristobal Colón and spent much of his life serving Spanish monarchs. Others suggest he was Portuguese, pointing to the many years he spent living in Lisbon, the fact he married a Portuguese noblewoman, the fact that he always referred to Portugal as his homeland, and that he had several ties with the Portuguese crown. There is even one argument which claims he was the illegitimate son of a Portuguese nobleman who changed his name to Coulon after a naval battle. There are other less convincing theories about Columbus's origins, including that he was a Byzantine Greek nobleman, a Sardinian nobleman, a Norwegian, a Scotsman, and even that he was the son of King Vladislav III of Poland. Wow. But as historian Felipe Fernandez Arnesto points out, the Columbuses concocted by historical fantasists are agenda-driven creations, usually inspired by a desire to arrogate a supposed or confected hero to the cause of a particular nation or historic community, or, more often than not, to some immigrant group striving to establish a special place of esteem in the United States. The point is, though, until indisputable evidence can be provided to pinpoint his actual homeland, Columbus's origins remain a work of fiction. But that may change, Pete. And soon, in 2021, an international team of scientists gathered at the University in Granada to try to answer the question of Columbus's origins. They announced a study which will analyse DNA collected from Columbus's remains using the most advanced genetic technology available. Now, according to a statement from the researchers, this is the most ambitious scientific research yet on Columbus's origins and compiles the work developed by the different theses that have emerged so far and possible genetic information to contrast. And the good news is that the results of their analysis, Pete, will be made public in October 2022. Huzzah! That's... Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> a month ago, as yes. time of recording. Yeah. yeah, it was a month ago. The results have still not been announced. Oh. I was super hoping they might have been. That would have been a cracking ending to this piece, wouldn't it? really it? would. Um, <laughs> that's it. Fiction in Italy during the Raisons. Huzzah! So, yeah, we'll let you know in maybe the verdict if it appears. Let's hope so. 
fine. I must say that was absolutely cracking stuff. Thank you I very thought much. it would be a dry list of titles from your Renaissance library, but actually, you brought <laughs> some excellent stories. Uh, I very much enjoyed the tale of the man who got a wine barrel and had the lady and just walked away entirely consequence free, which is uh, it's quite a story, in your head, isn't it? That's going to live rent free in your head for a while. That really is. And uh, Christopher Columbus, who I've always known is a bit of a jerk, isn't he? Let's face it. But uh, the petty lie. <laughs> Lying to his men. That is good stuff. But person, my personal favourite yeah, was that conversation favorite? about how... No, no, I saw that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> that was... I can see that so vividly in my mind. And the guy going, what the... <laughs> oh, poor guy. I feel his pain. So I thoroughly enjoyed that, Ryan. And I only hope I can present something in the next episode that is even half as interesting as that was to me. Well, wait, Pete, what's that sound? <gasps> is it... Bells? <laughs> it sounds like bells. <laughs> it can only mean one thing. A festive Dursley is in the house. Ho, yeah. ho, ho, as Dursley is frequently heard to say. <laughs> no, no, no. I no, think it's no, like no. Humbug. <laughs> right, so, um, yes, yeah, we should Dursley for you, because it's your episode next. A festive Dursleation. It's the Christmas Dursleation. So. Bring out the holly machine. Okay, right, I'm going to press a button now. Let's not hang around. Let's do it. Okay. Okay, oh, and your places. Oh, 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 Christmas. Malta. Malta. Ooh, interesting. A little island. I know a little about it. I have been there, so very, that's good. I'm from Christmassy Malta. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure how Christmassy is, but let's find out. <laughs> you had New Zealand last year. That's true. Yeah. Okay, oh, and your time period. Oh, time period oh, is. Christmas. Okay, it's 1945 to present, which is the Atomic Age. The Atomic Age. That's exciting. That is good. I'm happy with that. That's uh, Mod- feels <laughs> like there's something to be had, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And your oh, Christmas oh, topic oh, is... Merry Christmas! Noel. Noel. Yeah, as in like with the little umlauty thing. Gotcha. Not as in words without an L in them. Or a man's name, Noel. Noel. Yeah. Hey, don't rule back. it out. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not rule anything out at this stage. <laughs> if you come back with a Christmas episode that's just the history of Noel's on Malta. <laughs> Hello, I'm Noel. All right, well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I expect presents and Christmas lunch. Right. Well, that's something to look forward to. And that is, of course, our show for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things we've talked about, duplicitous explorers, fictional peoples, uh, reach out to us through the website, hhepodcast.com, or email us, Pete and Ryan, at hhepodcast.com. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show like Stephaline69 from Australia, Pete. Australia? Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> uh, well, look, g'day, Stephaline69. You said, uh, fascinating history we don't usually hear about. So much new knowledge to be gained from this podcast. Brilliantly produced. Just want to take a moment in that. <laughs> Bask in that, Ryan. Bask. <laughs> and hosted and so interesting. So thank you, Stephaline69. Really appreciate your review. Yeah, thanks, Stephaline. If you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or new in Mastodon, you can find us at HHE Podcast. That's right. And if you subscribe to one of those, you're going to get an alert every time we post something new on our channels. Yeah, we try to put a picture of us recording or some behind the scenes information. Uh, but we will, of course, be back again soon with The Verdict. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. I had a thoroughly nice time. Thanks, Peter. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to. 
history happened everywhere. Hey Pete. Hey Ryan. Breaking news. Oh, what's up? They just found out where Columbus was born. Oh, they did the DNA thing. DNA thing? No, no, no. That was a bust. We got something better, much more conclusive. Oh, what's that then? So they found a totally genuine early diary written by Columbus himself. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in it, he says, 14th of June, 1451. I was born today in Italy, where I am from. End of report. So there you go. He was Italian all along. Mystery solved. Well, that does sound like him. Let me have a look. Okay, here you go. Wait, Ryan, he, he can't possibly have written this. Well, why not? Well, because if he's from Italy, why is this written in English? It's not in English. It's in italics. Happy with that one? Yeah.